Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What took place in the sky over Blackpool, England recently? What's going on regarding UFOs and the U.S. Congress? Why are there so many similarities between alleged poltergeists and alleged aliens? Hey there, and welcome to the 557th edition of Behind the Paranormal with... Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those lofty questions, pardon the pun, came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So this evening, we are very pleased to welcome back one of the uh, more sensible and sober voices in the UFO community. And uh, we will welcome your calls this evening. The numbers are 401-766-1240 locally, or from anywhere in the uh, U.S. or Canada, 800 449 one two four zero, and we're also flirting with the 21st century. Uh, we will be monitoring emails this evening, uh, particularly for the sake of our UK listeners who might have trouble crawling, call, crawling, calling well, across crawling, the pond. Crawling as well, I suppose. Yeah. Yes, I suppose, uh, despite the uh, terrible phone race. But anyway, it's, it's Paul at behindtheparanormal.com. We'll be monitoring that. One of the most distinguished researchers on the global UFO scene, Gary Hesseltine, is a retired detective constable, having served in the British Transport Police between 1989 and 2013. In 2001, he established the Police Report UFOs, or PROOFOs, database, which contains hundreds of cases going back to 1901 and involving over 800 British police officers. He has been a tireless information gatherer, lecturer, author, screenwriter, editor, and researcher, he is now the publisher and editor of UFO Truth magazine, which we will talk about later. Gary's interest in UFOs stems from a childhood sighting in his, na- his native Lincolnshire in 1975, when he was 15. He lectures regularly throughout the British Isles and in the U.S., including the National Press Club in Washington, where he is presented with the prestigious disclo- he was presented with the, d- the d- prestigious <coughs> excuse me disclosure award by UFO activist Steve Bassett. Gary's website, ufotruthmagazine.com. So, Gary Hesseltine, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you very much for having me back. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's great to have you back with us. So, let's begin with a subject that's close to the hearts of all of us. Uh, that's tongue-in-cheek. Uh, the uh, ever-winding roads of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident of 1980... Uh, which this show has covered more than another world over. Uh, the pictures have been circulated of you and our good friend Larry Warren, who uh, was a witness to the UFO landings while he was uh, at uh, the U.S. Air Force Base. He's holding up a letter he wrote uh, to his mother at the time. So what is this letter and how is it significant? Well, it's actually uh, information that theoretically has been around for a long time. Uh, because in the book uh, left at Eastgate, the letter is actually transcribed. Uh, but what's uh, not been apparent until now, and perhaps not because of somebody of my background, that in a recent conversation with Larry a few months ago, he, I, I said about the letter, and he said, uh, well, I wrote the letter, and, I, and I've still got it. And I said, sorry. He said, uh, yeah, I've still got it. And, I, and he said, I've got the envelope too. And I said, what, a letter from... Uh, 1981 and he said yeah my mother uh, I sent the letters uh, like many servicemen do back to their parents and his mother had kept them and uh, at some point later in time had given the letters back to him that she'd kept and uh, the, the most amazing thing was when he said I've still got the original letter and more importantly in some ways the original envelope now as a detective I straight away thought, well, this is going to be very interesting. I want to see this letter, and I want to uh, examine it, for want of a better phrase. 
And uh, about a month or so later, Larry, uh, uh, actually at the uh, second UFO Truth magazine conference uh, uh, in August of this year, uh, actually produced the letter to me. And I quickly was able to have a quick look at it without really studying it whilst the conference was on. It was that live, as it were. But what became apparent to me is that uh, the significance is, is really profound if it's genuine. And I do believe it's genuine, but I say if because we will, to the sceptics, have to have it analysed and tested for its age and ink, etc., which should be done anyway. Mm -hmm. So that will be done. Uh, I do believe it's genuine, absolutely. Uh, but the significance is this, that the letter is dated the 6th of January, 1981 and the envelope which has the franking stamp from the base is dated the next day the 7th of January it says 7 Jan uh, 81 and uh, this has been confirmed by two independent people who approached me after I showed the letter at the conference to say this is genuine and the, and the franking uh, is a sealed unit and you cannot change the dates uh, more importantly, at the conference, one of the guest speakers was Captain Robert Salas, obviously very well known within the UFO field, and I showed this envelope to him during my lecture uh, and, and said, would you examine that? Do you think that, that is a genuine military envelope of the time frame? And he said yes, and he looked at the date stamp and he said that appears genuine. So that's interesting, as we did it live, as it were. Now, after the conference... I was obviously able to examine it, and Larry's actually given it to me uh, so that I can get it analysed at some point. And I made my own kind of police evidential analysis of the handwriting, etc. Uh, you'd expect a letter of that age to have certain marks and weathering, as it were, and it does. And so I've done some analysis, which will come out in uh, the next issue of UFO Truth magazine, which is coming out uh, at the end of this month, at the end of October. So that's going to be in there. But the key thing is, is that when you examine the eight-page letter, what you certainly see is that what comes up and strikes you straight in the face is the word, or the acronym, UFO, in capital letters. And it starts off basically saying, uh, my, he's talking to his mother, can you remember that UFO sighting I was telling you about. Now that's significant in itself because Larry has always said that within four hours of his involvement in the third night's UFO activities that he rang his mother from the base phone and that he was cut off. So in the letter you have a in a sense a corroboration of the fact that there was an earlier conversation uh, and it alludes to that. So when he writes down on the 6th of January, about do you remember the UFO incident? That is absolutely key because it's capital letters UFO. It doesn't say flying lighthouses. It doesn't <laughs> say animals uh, who make uh, triangular uh, rabbit impressions in the ground. Uh, it doesn't say that it's a mind psyop. It says UFO. Now, the key thing about this is, is that when you get to page four, because a lot of the letter is mundane, talking to mom, how's this, how's that, how's auntie this, this, and whatever. When you get to page four, we have more than a page and a half of what is essentially the first written record 
essentially of the first night, Penniston and Burroughs, with a landed triangular craft, even giving dimensions that are approximate and correct as to what Jim and John have said subsequently. So the significance of this is amazing because, in reality, up until now, the first acknowledged documentary, and what I mean by documentary is written evidence, piece of paper, that talked about the incident was the Holt Memorandum, the famous Charles Holt Memorandum. But that was written on the 13th of January, a full week later. So if this Larry Warner and letter is genuine, and I believe it is and will be proved to be genuine, if it is, and I say it is, then this is written a full week ahead, and it says within days of the incident, the word acronym UFO in capital letters, and goes on to give a, a page and a half description of the events which you could more or less describe as the first night's activity. Now that's mind-blowing, to have an original record and the envelope that absolutely nails on the date, with the date stamp and the base envelope in its style, is absolutely amazing and this has not been picked up until now so whilst the content may have been known to have an historical document an original historical document come forward that now predates the whole memorandum by a week i think is a major major issue well it certainly sounds like it uh, any listener to this show who is a regular is probably an expert in this case because as ben said we've covered this more than any other show in the world However, for those who may be lost in Rendlesham Forest at this point, let me just give a little bit of background. What we're talking about this evening is a case that occurred... Uh, well, well we, we're sort of making a study of Rendlesham Forest. Ben and I, we have our own theories about how these things are the tip of the iceberg and other, other things are behind that. However, in 1980, in December, uh, Rendlesham Forest, which is a, an, a, what's known as an industrial forest, it was deliberately planted uh, between two air bases that started about World War II, RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters. Uh, th this is the scene of what we're talking about. And then three days, three nights over the, uh, uh, over a three-night period in December 1980, there were uh, sightings, landings, uh, possible interactions between occupants of these craft and U.S. Air Force personnel, including high-ranking officers. So, and there are two, I suppose, den denominations, one might say, in this case. And of course, one can. There are all sorts of implications of people being, as Colonel Halt says, messed with, and and the intelligence uh, community coming in and, and covering it up, and all this business, which is not hard to believe. But Larry Warren, uh, whom Gary has mentioned, is one of the major players in this, and uh, we know Larry. He has always struck us as a very uh, honest and straightforward person. He was one of the witnesses uh, in, in his book written with our good friend Peter Robbins, whom I, only, I spent some time with over the weekend, uh, was uh, able to lay out a, a very uh, amazing and dramatic scenario of what Larry saw uh, on the night, um, one of the nights in question, and uh, craft on the ground, uh, beings around that, this sort of thing, and witnessed by a number of people. Uh, then on the other hand, you have the other uh, group, which is uh, led essentially by uh, Jim Penniston and Nick Pope, uh, and John Burroughs, who have uh, recently written another book about an entirely different scenario. And I've always asked, why couldn't this both have happened at the same time? But, but they've always implied that Larry was not even there, and uh, et cetera. So, so there were all sorts of 
politics and diplomatic issues going on here is the issue of nuclear weapons being stored at the base, which was not supposed to be the case and uh, because of treaty. And you name it, it, it the, the well gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So th this, is, this is the background of what we're talking about. And I have to tell you, Gary, uh, I was struck by the, by the letter. I saw the photos uh, that were taken in August at the uh, UFO Truth uh, Conference, uh, and uh, I want to know how that went, too. I'm sorry we couldn't be there. And also there was uh, something that occurred this past weekend that I'm sure you're probably aware of, but that we were not. Uh, there were actually two things at the New second New England UFO conference. Uh, ben couldn't make it, but I, I gave our presentation on this, what we think is a bigger scenario here in, in general in the UFO world. But uh, Steve LaPlume was there. He also was a U.S. Air Force security policeman at the time and had his own um, at, at the gate of the base, had his own experience of a UFO coming over, and he described that in great detail. It was quite, uh, quite striking. And it um, also involved a uh, lecture by Peter Robbins, who was the co-author with Larry Warren of Left at East Gate, very interesting book, and the first, one, first major book about this case, a bestseller in the UK. And he showed a photograph that had not, as far as I know, had not been shown before. I don't know, if, I'm sure you're probably aware of this, Gary, but it was uh, the third night, the third day of, of, the, of the incident, and Larry had just obtained a new camera. And the first picture he took was of an A-10 aircraft coming into land at Bent Waters and over the trees of the forest. And the way uh, Peter described that he had this picture for years and you know, 30, 35 years now almost in his collection. And he uh, lives in New York City. And a, a fellow who happened to be a photo expert was over visiting him and was looking through these photos. And, and he said he kind of looked at, the, at this one with the A-10 in it and said, you know, there's something else in this picture. And sure enough, they scanned it and enhanced it a little bit, and there is a craft, apparently, above the A-10 that looks exactly like the one John Burroughs, one of the Air Force witnesses, drew, uh, landed on the uh, forest floor and in his experience with Jim Penniston. And they've written a book together, but now, now John is kind of... Um, Getting uh, back, you know, getting in with Larry, and, and uh, is realizing that there's some some veracity to that story. Anyway, it's more politics. But uh, were you aware of that photograph? It's really amazing. I mean, it, it looks just like the uh, um, picture that it, uh, was it, it is, and I, I, I am aware of the uh, the significance of that photograph. Uh, it, the scenario of its uh, origin is not quite uh, uh, as I believe that it is. I, I think the real story uh, is that um, Larry Warren uh, did get the Polaroid camera, just a cheap 110 camera, and did take a series of mundane shots, and one of them uh, was of an A-10 over the forest, which he didn't realise put any significance to. Mm -hmm. But the key thing was that that was several hours before Larry became involved in the third night of activity. So that photograph actually predates the third night event. That's what he told Larry me this morning. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So, but the key thing is though that uh, Larry had the uh, the the original for many many years, and at some point, um, a a friend uh, decided just to put some uh, scanned copies up onto the internet, and for years uh, these were in his albums, uh, and 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 he and he was frustrated. He, he it's not a great photograph, and he didn't really attach any importance but what it, what Larry will say is that something about the picture always bothered him 
but he didn't know why. Mm. And uh, literally, uh, what happened was that uh, uh, somebody uh, looked through his Facebook albums and came across this picture and noticed that there appeared to be an object above the A10 in the in this scanned copy. Now, what you've got to realise is that, unfortunately, the very original uh, A10 print of that photograph is probably lost. We don't know where it is. Larry doesn't know where it is. So the, probably the original is lost, which is a downside. However, the, it, the photograph that was put up was from the original. And basically what happened is that the guy who looked at the Facebook photograph did, uh, obviously took a copy for himself and then did a, did a bit of Photoshop on it and blew it up and found that there was one, if not two, objects above the A10. But one was much clearer and closest to the A10. Now, he put that up and said, oh, I found this. And then another guy on Facebook saw the same analysis that the first guy had done and said, oh, I'll do a bit of work on that too. And basically, he came back and corroborated that there was indeed on the scanned copy of the original uh, uh, one to two objects, but certainly one that was quite clear. Mm. And they blew it up and it did have this uh, strange shape. And as soon as Larry was made aware of this, Larry said, that's what I saw. That is the strange shape of the craft that I saw. And I think if you go back to the original News of the World, the British newspaper that did the big uh, expose in October 1983 to announce the case to the world, it contained an image very, very similar to what this uh, uh, photograph showed. Now, the significance of that is, is that the... The photograph itself, whilst we've not got the original, predates the sighting or involvement of Larry Warren. So that's significant in itself. Uh, and this is, to Larry, something that is like just another piece of the jigsaw that has fallen into place some 34 years later. He took the photograph, he didn't realise the significance. To him it was just a mundane, boring photograph, for want of a better phrase. It was just a throwaway shot. But here, 34 years later, we now have uh, that photograph so like, coming back out of the woodwork. Now, the significant thing about that is not only did the two Facebook viewers do their analysis, but the eminent Bruce McAbee, obviously naval physicist, etc., photographic expert, also examined, and he actually put onto Facebook, which is not something he usually does, he comes and says that this object is in there, it's definitely in the photograph and appears to be uh, many uh, many feet in diameter. Now, when the likes of Bruce McAbee actually annotates Facebook to this image and gives it that kind of credibility and respectability, then I think that we have to be taking that photograph seriously. The downside is that is in terms of what I would call police evidential material, it would appear that the original photograph, Polaroid print, is lost uh, or whatever and, and is not in existence, which is, which is a shame. That's why, coming back to the significance of the Larry Warren letter, is abs which makes it absolutely significant because we have the original letter which will be examined uh, and I'm sure will come back as genuine of the age period, ink period, etc. And we have the original envelope for the same reasons. So uh, two significant things uh, that have just come out of the woodworks 34 years later. Indeed. And let me just, let me just, you, you've alluded to 
a lot of internal politics in the cases and factions, and I think that has been the case. Uh, however, what I would say is that at the recent Woodbridge Rendlesham conference uh, on the 20th of September, of which I was the speaker, Richard Dolan, John Burroughs, and Larry Warren, um, I'd met John Burroughs before on a couple of occasions, but uh, Larry and John got on really well. Uh, and uh, people oh, it's wonderful to see. They, they don't get on, and in fact, they took some photographs in and around the base, and they got on well, and significantly, and I, and I don't know if this has come out, is that the, on the third night, um, John Burroughs has always said that he uh, tried to come forward. It was initially stopped by Holtling coming forward. That's on the transcript that permission is asked and refused. But what uh, John Burroughs has always said is that he did come forward with Adrian Bustinza and at some point they went ahead of Holt on the third night and uh, uh, Bustinza fell and John Burroughs moved forward and was like engulfed by a strange light. Now, this has always been kind of conjecture, but here's an interesting thing that Larry Warren uh, uh, said to John Burroughs. He described... And a lot of people uh, have said that Larry Warren's not there, that he's a wannabe, whatever. Larry Warren described the clearing area as as when he arrived, because he, he said he was picked up by Adrian Bustinza, uh, that when he got to the clearing area, he described it to a T how John Burroughs remembered it. And this is like, well, you're not supposed to be there kind of thing, but John Burroughs... Uh, confirmed that Larry described the, the uh, scenario and the way the trucks were and where everything was, the equipment was, he described it. So Larry Warren, I'm certain, was there. And this is, again, just another little factor. So that, that tie-up that they've had, uh, uh, and I think they've been able to talk through many things, they're in a good place. And uh, John is in a good place. He's looking very healthy now after his operation. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he's consented to do an article for me. So I'm going to do a Q&A with him. Uh, and that will probably be in uh, the 10th issue of the magazine coming out at the end of December. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, But the bottom line is, and I've said this all along, I've been researching the case for now uh, seven years since I met Colonel Holt, is that really the time should come that all the the people involved as witnesses whether it be the main witnesses or periphery witnesses who were involved in that night have all really should call a truce and say look let's stop quibbling amongst ourselves let's just work together to find out what we can achieve by working together and really the petty politics that's gone on serves no purpose uh, to anybody um, because it's divisive and really what should come together is everybody should acknowledge in whatever and respect each other's views and say yeah you're involved i mean uh, for a long time people didn't acknowledge that larry warren was the original whistleblower but i think everybody does accept that he is the original whistleblower and and history will say that he is and and so he plays a very prominent part so whatever the part of larry, larry warren is He's, he's, a, he's the key player that got this story out in the first place. And there's lots of people involved. Uh, Doc Butler, Brenda, uh, uh, Doc Street, Brenda Butler, the original UK local villagers who got involved, did a tremendous job in getting early feedback that something had occurred. 
Um, you've got all these people that, that were involved. Jenny Randall's worked on the Sky Crash book uh, with uh, Dot Street and Brenda Butler. Uh, so they're all key players. But there's, a, there's still a lot more information that could come out, uh, certainly with more civilians. Uh, personally, one of the things that I think should be done, and I did mention this to the organiser of the Woodbridge Conference, is we should look to have a civilian witness conference where we can try to garner the witnesses that have already gone on the record, but I suspect and I've been told privately that there are many more civilian witnesses who've got tales to tell around that Christmas period, uh, that they should be encouraged to come forward because they are all part of the same event. And, and all, if we can get all this testimony on the record and work together, I'm sure we'll move forward quicker than perhaps we have done over the last uh, 20, well, since 1983 when it came out. Yeah, certainly right. I think maybe we have to take a break pretty soon, but we have to... Um, I think I like to think we kind of got a start on that in 2012 when Ben and I were over there, and, and we, we specifically, and, and the same promoter who did the Woodbridge Conferences organized this, and it was kind of billed as a way for people, to, civilian, local people, to come through and, and tell, tell their stories, and they did at the end of our presentation, and so maybe that was a start to that. But we're in touch with a lot of them and are and are pursuing that, and uh, certainly you want to keep you in the loop on that. Uh, just very briefly, before we go to our break, w one thing, uh, maybe this is a third thing, and we want to get onto some other cases, but uh, at the conference this, this weekend, uh, Steve LaPlume, uh, the witness from the uh, former Air Force fellow, said that um, Larry, and I'd never heard this before either, that Larry Warren had come to his room. Now, they had first met in, in, a, in a bar fight, <laughs> so, and their relationship kind of improved from there. And uh, Larry said, uh, you know, I know what, you know, what people are in the base are talking about, you, an experience you had. Well, I want to tell you what happened to me. And they had a heart-to-heart. -heart, and uh, Steve said he told him everything that is currently in the book Left at East Gate that he wrote with Peter Robin. So that, to me, was another vindication of Larry's story. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and several people have confirmed that Larry was involved. Uh, but it, 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 I think... There has been different factions, and there still are different factions, which is a shame. Um, uh, and, and there are certain controversies that, in a sense, can't be brushed away. Um, one of those being the binary codes has thrown uh, itself up in the last uh, four years, and I think that is very controversial, personally. Uh, but, you know, uh, that needs to be discussed. Uh, so a lot of people will find it incredulous that... Uh, Jim Penniston would keep that kind of information and I personally as an ex-detective find it incredulous that he didn't tell John Burroughs until October 2010 so these are things that we can't brush aside uh, but that's not to say uh, actually and I'll just throw this in there that, uh, that the, with regards to the binary codes John Burroughs said at that recent conference to me privately he said because I expressed some uh, uh, concern over the binary codes and he said that, uh, uh, that um, during the making of the program that first brought this out, the, I think it was the Ancient Aliens program, that, uh, that they were contracted to, that, that um, uh, Jim Pennison had openly said, you know, you can have the pages and do what you want with them to get them analysed, which is something he needs to do. He needs to let it go to independent people, not somebody who's got a bias making a TV program. It needs to go to probably six or seven independent um, experts in the field of binary uh, to see whether it's uh, of anything and see what uh, 
what what they come up with in terms of answers. But apparently John Burroughs did say that he was willing to give it over, which impressed me that uh, Jim Pennison was prepared to do that because yeah. he has to do that to get credibility. If it has to have any kind of credence, he has to have it examined, not by people with a vested interest, he has to have it examined by independent labs who have nothing, no interest in the case whatsoever, but they should all be able to interpret the same pages of information in the same way. And what you shouldn't get, which I think is the case at the moment, is depending on who's done the analysis, uh, people are getting different results. And that shouldn't be the case, which doesn't bode well for their uh, relevance or not. Uh, okay, if they're right. genuine, if they're genuine, they should all come back with the same results, surely. Well, exactly. Well, I don't want to talk too much about people when they're not here to respond, but we, have, we do have to no, take I, our I break. I agree. I agree with that, but it's, it's, it's part of the issue. Oh, well, it is. It is. Well, we're going to take our break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We're speaking with Gary Hesseltine, our good friend from England and distinguished UFO expert, and we'll be right back, so stay with us. The Extra Point. Afternoons on ON 1240 Radio, bringing you local interviews, stories, and opinions on the local athletes with none other than radio great Lou Mandeville. Yes, that's me. Afternoons Monday through Friday on ON 1240. Several charities Ben and I have adopted. Certainly USACares.org do wonderful things financially for veterans and their families, particularly those families who may have lost loved ones in the war on terror and uh, check that out usacares.org uh, also locally buildershelpingheroes.org the Rhode Island Builders Association operating a program to assist uh, veterans and their families with remodeling and anything they need uh, when and again these are veterans of the war, war on terror and uh, I was a witness to the uh, wonderful project last year uh, building a home in Burrowville, Rhode Island right in our listening area here for a Marine who had lost both legs in combat in Afghanistan and a wonderful house, a uh, special needs house was built for him. And it was, uh, it was really great to see these, these people honored as they deserve. Also to our uh, friends and relatives up north, the Canadian Veterans Advocacy, uh, run by Mike Blaze in Ontario, does tremendous things legislatively and legally for veterans of, of Canada who have been with us um, all the way along to the war on terror. So let's, uh, let's get back to our guest. And uh, Ben, being the producer, has had to run out, but I will ask his question, Gary. Um, until you mentioned it, we hadn't heard about the recent daylight UFO sighting by up to 80 witnesses during a conference in Blackpool in the northwest of England. What, what's, what's going on with that? Uh, this was uh, what's called the PROBE, P-R-O-B-E, conference. That's a group uh, who regularly hold a, a one or two conferences a year. Uh, and basically, during so this is run during the day. I think it was the 11th and 12th of October uh, over that weekend and basically during one of the breaks against the clear blue sky lots of people are outside taking a breath of fresh air when they notice what appears to be a stationary object in the sky uh, and it's a clear blue sky and people are thinking well it isn't moving it doesn't appear to be a balloon etc etc and they start taking photographs and uh, I do believe there's some little bits of video and yet although I've yet to see the video clips, uh, but apparently up to about 80 people who were uh, attending the conference all saw this. So once I became aware of this, because I wasn't at the conference, uh, what I've done is uh, I've, I've gone onto Facebook, the magazine Facebook page, uh, and put out a, a, a message to everyone that's on Facebook who attended to uh, contact me 
because I want to coordinate a response and get as much detail about the event uh, so we can kind of do some kind of investigation. Some of the photographs are extremely uh, uh, very good, you know, and they clearly show a, uh, an object which you could describe as being a dome-shaped, uh, uh, craft-looking object in the sky. Uh, there's a couple of photographs that I received today that uh, show an aircraft passing through the same uh, photographic frame, so that's good reference point uh, that there's an object clearly there with an aircraft and its uh, vapor trail behind it, so that that's good. Uh, I've got I've started sending out sight and report forms that I have uh, devised many years ago for the police officers. These are civilian report forms. Uh, they've gone out and a number of them have already come back. I've probably got four so far. Uh, and, the, and, and the inquiry is just launching. Uh, so I would make an appeal that if anybody in the UK who was present at that probe conference, if they will email me at hazeltinegarry at hotmail.com, I will gladly send them a sighting report form because if there are that many witnesses and the photographs are good, and I think I've seen at least now 20 or so photographs, uh, some of them pretty good quality, uh, that we should be investigating what is a mass sighting of an object that appears to have been stationary for about an hour uh, against the clear blue sky uh, above the skies of Blackpool. Now, that shouldn't be there by anybody's definition. If it's a balloon, it's going by the wind, it should drift one way or another. It shouldn't stay there, but most of the witnesses are describing what appears to be a stationary uh, object in the sky and so it's a it's a good case that's just suddenly arisen uh, and it's something that i'm going to report back on in the future and see what we get back well pretty interesting tell us tell us about your own experience at the age of 15 which which as you say led you into this field and uh you know how it affected your 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 law enforcement career and led you to be editor of ufo magazine ufo truth magazine just just t tell us your own story gary well, how long have you got? Because, that, that, uh, yeah, you know, realistically, this is quite a long story. But cutting the long story short, uh, my original sighting was when I was walking my then-girlfriend home. She was called Dawn. I won't mention her surname because that wouldn't be right. I don't know what she's doing these days or where she is, etc. But we were walking home towards her house, and uh, we had to, to get to her house, we had to walk down what was then a totally um, dark... Um, long footpath that uh, that passed through my high school as you would say high school sports fields on the left as we're walking forward and there was large garden area which in england we call allotments i don't know what the word is in the u.s uh, but basically garden area where people grow their own vegetables big big area so basically as we're walking down this pathway that dissected both the high school fields in this large gardening area, uh, basically, uh, probably at the darkest point uh, of the pathway, uh, against a backdrop of uh, brilliant night stars, no clouds, it was one of those rare UK nights where there's not a cloud in the sky and it's warm and uh, the stars are out and twinkling and looking great. Suddenly we see uh, at about a 60 degree angle what appeared to be just a bright white light, no distinct shape. Uh, it certainly wasn't an aircraft, it certainly wasn't a meteor or anything like this, or a shooting star, of which I'd seen many times. This was a very slow-moving, indistinguishable, bright white light at a 60-degree angle, uh, and I would estimate anywhere from two to 5,000 feet. Not that high, and it was moving totally silently. Now, 
in the distance, if you can imagine walking forward uh, and you've got this pathway to walk along, uh, and in the distance you could see the housing, a uh, housing estate, lots of buildings with the electricity lights on, windows lit up, etc. It's about eight, nine o'clock at night. Uh, then suddenly, as the object passed by us, so therefore we were now behind its flight path, the whole area of housing in the distance, which was approximately three to four hundred metres away, uh, was plunged into a total power failure, like a grid failure, power cut, we would say in England, and the area just went black. Uh, it's, it's very reminiscent of the scene in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, early on in the movie, Indeed. where Richard Dreyfus is looking down on the city as the power grid goes off bit by bit. It was a bit like that because we watched it, and, and as the object very slowly, slowly moved from our right to left, the housing behind the area of its flight path went off. So there were two power cuts, and the area of where my girlfriend lived was plunged into darkness. And literally, at the time, I had my bicycle with me, and I said, get on the bike, I'm going to drop you back, and I'm going to uh, try to catch this thing up because it's moving in the direction of where I lived. It was moving very slowly in an arc, if you plot it on a map, in the general area of where I lived. Now, I basically did that. We got on the bike, two of us on the bike, and we rode to the end of the alleyway, turned right, and literally about 300 metres up from that was her house. I dropped her. The whole area is plunged into darkness. There is no street lamps, no electricity whatsoever. I then go back to the same alleyway and I'm racing like mad. I go down the length of the alleyway, racing as fast as I could to get onto a road called Grange Lane South, turn right, and then I pedal like mad trying to catch up this object that I can see ahead of me on my right as it's moving very slowly, silently in the general direction of where I lived. Now, what's always stayed with me is that if you can imagine... Um, you look outside now of your studio and the whole power's off and then in the distance you can see the power's on there's a clear distinction between darkness and the light well as I ended up going to the corner of what was called Grange Lane South the road bends to the left and as I got to that point where the road began to turn to the left I have this clear memory of going from total pitch black darkness and the power was on and as I got to that corner the power was on and I remember looking over my right shoulder uh, and and looking up to my right just behind me was the object so I had now overtaken the object I go around two corners drop my bike outside my house I rush into my parents who were having a cup of tea supper time in England as people do and said come outside I think there's going to be a power cut caused by this strange light I've seen they just looked at me bemused I then, they didn't get up, so I ran through the hall, through the kitchen, through the back door, into the back garden, turned around to look back at my house from the garden, just in time to see the object coming over my rooftop, which is bizarre, coming over my rooftop, I put my arm over my head, straight up, to make like a, uh, a, a salute, kind of straight up, like you're in class and answering a question, and no sooner had the object passed beyond my arm, which is, sounds crazy, the whole area was plunged into darkness. Power mm. cut. Now, how could I predict a power cut? It's ridiculous. So it's at that point there, and having moved to a second geographical position from where I'd originally seen it, 
that I realised that that object, whatever it was, had somehow interacted with the power grid. And that is the thing that created my interest. And basically, the only thing that I could do in 1975, uh, because it was just before the uh, Betamax and the VHS era of the video recording, uh, was go to the local second-hand bookshop and look for it, object uh, books on flying saucers. And here's the key thing. And I never used to believe in the phrase of synchronicity. In fact, I don't think I'd ever even heard of the word until I began my research. The very first book I got was by Major Donald Kehoe. And uh, it was I think it was Aliens Are Real. And basically, it was his last book, 1973, published. I got a brand new copy of it in the second-hand book shop. And uh, I read it, and straight away in that book, there's a reference to the New York blackout of 1965, uh, which was a, some people suspect was down to UFOs, triggering power feds. So and they even made a Hollywood movie about it on the subtext, not that it was UFO related, but they made a movie about that six hours when all the power's out. Uh, but basically, what a coincidence that the very first book I should ever get on the subject was by somebody who I now regard as an actual pioneer of this subject uh, uh, and in fact uh, I inducted him at the launch of the magazine into the Hall of Fame for the magazine because that guy stood up and said I believe this is E.T. and the thing was he was a very credible source he was in the military uh, he had lots of very high ranking uh, colonels generals etc who would feed him information who were very very uh, pro the E.T. as in uh, extraterrestrial or interplanetary at that time and uh, in fact went on to form NICAP which was you know originally it was set up with these very high-ranking people it, it you know if this was to ever be recreated now with all the people they had at their disposal we wouldn't be having this debate uh, um, but it was a it, he was a, a real pioneer and um, was cut off on live television on one famous occasion when he wanted to say that ET is real and they cut the sound uh, it's, it's all documented but but I mean what I could have picked up a book by a crazy man uh, about flying saucers, and there's lots of crazy books about flying saucers, but the first book that I get is by Donald Kehoe, and that had such a, a resonance with me, and finding that reference to power cuts in the 1965 blackout, uh, to me, was just like vindication that what I'd seen was somehow UFO related. I had no interest in the subject up to that point, but I then had an interest which, cutting a long story short, didn't really manifest itself until the mid-1990s uh, when I came across the famous British uh, printed magazine, UFO magazine, which was under a guy called Graham Birdsell, very, uh, uh, who sadly died in 2003 of a brain hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. But he, he was a, he was a widely regarded magazine uh, within the field, and uh, worldwide it went to something like 44 countries. So when I read about pilots chasing UFOs, uh, structured objects, and I'm not saying all UFOs are, are structured because they clearly aren't, they operate on many levels, but there is a clear proportion of structured objects that are seen uh, that are physical or appear to be physical that are followed and chased by pilots in intercepts and things like that, so that is definitely a part of it and that appealed to my sense because uh, in 1995 when I came across that magazine I was then a, uh, already a detective. I'd been in the police six years. I'd been in the RAF police for a further six years. So 
I was kind of knew what evidence was, and when I when I started to hear about radar visual cases and things like that, a sense of frustration began to well up in me. And cutting a long story short, eventually it, it led me to approach Graham Birdsell and say, "Look, I've had this idea uh, for a, a database of police officers. Would you allow me to write an article in your magazine?" And uh, I'd never written anything in my life at that point. And he said, yes, I, I, I'm all for credibility. You're a, a police detective, and that's going to be good for the subject. Uh, and it's a great idea. So he was really the person who, in a sense, became a bit of a mentor in the last couple of years when I got to know him before he died. And he gave me that platform to launch the database. And now here we are, 12 years on. Um, I've now got over 500 cases involving over a thousand British police officers and I'm actually embarking on what I've been threatening to do for the last three or four years and write the book, the Proof Falls book, uh, uh, but it's launching the magazine, retiring, launching the magazine, creating conferences, time runs away with you and I'm sure you know what that's like. Um, there's never enough hours in the day kind of thing. Oh, but no. it's something I have to get done because people say we need that book out there about all these police cases. Uh, you know, and there's 500 cases, so there's a wealth of material. Uh, but interestingly, over the years, I've tried to get mainstream publishers, and nobody would go near it. Uh, and uh, I will go back to see if I can get a mainstream publisher. But if not, I'll, I'll self-publish. Or uh, you know, one or two people within the UFO community have talked about uh, uh, publishing it for me. So the thing is, I've got to try to get my head down. Uh, and I've spent quite a few months now getting all the research material together so once I begin that process it, the, the hard work should have been done it's then it's just a question of putting it all together as a narrative and and you know the, the, the amount of cases that I've got already fill over 130 pages of the book already so really it's just expanding on that and, and writing the narrative to go with it now there is a, a debate that I've had uh, that I still have uh, as to whether I want to write a history book that just writes, uh, that just does the narrative for the cases without interpretation, or do I tell what I think is the real story of what I know now, because I'm obviously something of an historian and followed the subject since I was 15 and I'm now 54, so 39 years I know pretty much what's occurred in the lifetime of the ufology in the modern era. Do I interpret what these officers have seen and there are so many commonalities of flying triangles objects that appear and then disappear in front of the officers uh in the blink of an eye uh vertical ascent you know vertical descent uh, right angle turns objects the size of three football fields you know there are so many commonalities in the reports i think it would be remiss of me not to do that so uh, as much as i want to write just a put it out there and uh, here's, you make up your own mind. I can't do that because I know the real truth of what's uh, occurring here and, and and not to put out the facts of the bigger picture would be wrong. So it will be my interpretation of a lot of these cases. The facts will speak for themselves and I will add to that, but I will, I'm prepared to give interpretations based on what we've learned uh, over the last 70 years of ufology. Sounds great. Uh, ben, we haven't heard much from you this evening. No, no. Well, I've been running around doing other things. But um, something came came to mind. And, you know, Stan Friedman always points out that all flying saucers are UFOs, but not all UFOs are flying saucers. And, you know, it doesn't seem like, well, to us at least, that the UFO 
research has come very far in the last century. So what do you feel uh, tr- is truly explainable for those UFOs that, uh, or for what exactly UFOs could be? Well, realistically, I think, uh, uh, I mean, Stan Friedman, who, uh, who was just confirmed to be the headline speaker at the 2015 UFO Truth Conference, which is good because he's a legend, uh, is somebody I deeply respect. I've met him several times. Uh, he's a legend. Uh, uh, and he's in his scientific background, a physicist working for Westinghouse and, uh, you know, and, and a lot of top companies working on the, uh, you know, for NASA at some point. Uh, uh, he, he's got a wealth of, uh, of research. And, and, and what uh, he, his stance is pretty much the stance that I have taken perhaps from him or whatever. But I do believe that when you look, I'm not bothered about all the 97% of cases that can be explained as mundane misidentification astronomical i aren't bothered one jot about those i'm only bothered about the three percent of cases that after investigation stand up to scrutiny and in that three percent of cases many of which are pilot cases radar visuals multiple radar airborne ground radar confirmations those kind of cases they stand up to scrutiny and uh, for example when you hear the testimony of colonel oscar santa maria uh, when he gave it at the, uh, the citizens hearing first and a pilot being sent up in daylight to intercept a uh, radar confirmed UFO and he's ordered to fire at it he does fire at it and he's ob- the object absorbs the bullets with no effect and then suddenly as he's moving in and originally he thought it was a balloon uh, it suddenly does a vertical ascent of uh, uh, maybe 10,000 feet in a matter of seconds which I don't care what anybody says, our stealth still can't do that, so it isn't stealth. So I'm only bothered about the 3%, and I think if you look at the very best cases in that 3%, there is a clear, from a a police detective of many years standing around, 18, 19 years as a detective working on all manner of inquiries, I should know what evidence is and what would stand up in a court of law, and if I look at it on the circumstantial evidence basis, the uh, the evidence points overwhelmingly that a small proportion of cases, this 3% that I talk about, are uh, ET without a shadow of a doubt. Yes, that's not to say that it's a very complicated issue. Uh, you know, are there light beings? Are there uh, alien abductions? All those kind of things. And uh, uh, there are certainly many commonalities between, as you hinted at, between poltergeist activity and abduction phenomena and things like that. So... It's a very complicated subject, but is there ET? The circumstantial evidence to me, looking at it through many years as a detective, would seem to be overwhelming that it's yes. Uh, and uh, so I do think that's the answer. ET is here, has been surveilling us for over 70 years and probably a lot longer. They may live in our deepest oceans because we, even mainstream science is going to say we only know 1% of the oceans now well that leaves 99 percent that we don't know uh, and ufos are commonly seen going in and out of large bodies of water so that would mean to me that they could have been here for a long time uh, and uh, and a lot of people say that uh, they appear to be benign well some clearly are some species appear to be benign i've got our interests at heart i.e the nuclear issue they've often turned up at all the nuclear sites etc perhaps because they live here in the deepest oceans they don't want to see their habitat destroyed by man's foolishness 
uh, you know, it's a complicated issue, but is there evidence? I would say overwhelming, yes. Well, uh, Gary, uh, with just about out of time here, and I want to give you a chance to talk about UFO Truth Magazine, which I have to say, uh, we're, we subscribe to it. It's an online magazine, easy to subscribe to. It's full of great information. There isn't a wasted inch in that publication. My compliments well, that, on that. Well, let me tell you briefly, the key things from that is it's 96 pages, it's bi-monthly, and it features most of the top people in the world, people like uh, A.J. Javad from Brazil, uh, Steve Bassett's written, uh, Colonel Holt's written, Robert Hastings, Captain Robert Salas, uh, Peter Robbins, uh, Susan Hansen from New Zealand. It's a worldwide, uh, we've got Pia Nussen from Denmark, we've got Francisco Correa, uh, top Portuguese top writer. So it, I'm trying to create a worldwide uh, UFO magazine. The top research is writing freely for the magazine, uh, and the idea, is, the key thing is, a third of all monies from subscriptions is ring fence for UFO causes. We have it within us that if we all pay just a few little cents, a few little pennies into this, and we all buy into the concept, and the armchair millions of internet followers actually put pen to paper and sign up to a subscription, that we will create a huge body of money that we can ring fence to start attacking the media in the sense that we could take full-page ads. We don't need the reporters then. If they turn us down, then the, we'd have to have an auditable trail that says, why are you turning my $5,000 down to have it in the Times in England? You know, you want the money for advertising? Well, here's £5,000. Let me put what I want in this full-page ad. Oh, we're not going to do it because it's UFOs. Well, why aren't you doing it? It would all be auditable. So even if they say no, it would then provide us with documentary evidence that says... The media suppression is real. We know it is, but this provides the actual evidence in documentary form. We're not doing your five. We're not accepting your five thousand pounds or dollars or whatever because it's UFOs. Okay. Well, so we're just no, about no losers. We're just about done. It's ufotruthmagazine.com. It's even got a no. It's not dot com. It was dot com. It's now dot co dot uk. You want dot co dot uk? Go to the website. And there's lots of information on there, and there will be details about the conference coming up. But I can just drop this in. AJ Javad from Brazil has just confirmed. Carl, uh, Carl Nally and Dermot Butler from Ireland, the top researchers there, they're coming over. Uh, Richard D. Hall from Rich Planet, uh, UK TV, he's going to be there. Larry Warren's going to be the co host again for the third year running. We'll have a good conference. Excellent. Gary, thanks so much. We'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Anytime. Okay. Very good, everybody. Gary Hesseltine. Okay, the second New England UFO conference we mentioned uh, this weekend was great. Though the first speaker, had, I was the first speaker and had to overcome all the initial technical glitches. But DVDs of the speakers at events will soon be available. We'll give you details on that soon. And on uh, Saturday, November first, uh, my dad and I will be featured speakers at the uh, Autumn Paranormal Event to uh, give benefit to the New Hampshire SPCA, and uh, that is at the uh, uh, Lane Memorial Library at uh, Two Academy Ave in Hampton. Uh, New Hampshire from uh, noon to 4, 4 p.m. in our program, What's Really Behind the Paranormal? And this is a free event, so check the link at BehindTheParanormal.com. We can find all sorts of other things as well, podcasts and articles and all sorts of other good stuff like that. Okay, the next Monday, October 27th, here on ON1240, we'll welcome longtime researchers Tom Burnett and Bart Rob Riggs for a look at the truth about Bigfoot. We'll leave you this evening with a happy quote from Dr. Seuss. You're never too old, too wacky, too wild to pick up a book and read to a child. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time.
Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.